Okay, I'm going to discuss, uh, uh, give an overview of nuclear fusion and its technology. We just um, fusion energy, maybe many of you already know that fusion energy is the same source of energy that takes place inside of stars. So the sun, our nearest star, uh, makes its energy by combining hydrogen and ultimately making helium. The uh, reaction is actually a little bit prolonged. Uh, you start with two uh, protons and you create a deuteron. That then combines with a proton which creates helium-3. Uh, the same reaction occurs somewhere nearby, and that contributes another helium-3, which ultimately makes helium-4, and two protons are shot back out. The fusion reactions in the sun consume about 600 million tons of hydrogen every second. It's really astounding. And uh, today I'm going to concentrate on fusion energy. I'm going to refer occasionally to fission. Uh, fusion energy is uh, from combining light nuclei to make... Uh, um, uh, to make heavier nuclei and release energy, and fission energy is the opposite. It's splitting up a very heavy nuclei uh, to make smaller nuclei which release energy. Uh, let me do a quick diversion on atoms and nuclei. A nice picture to keep in your head is this one up here, even though it's actually wrong. I show the correct picture below, but this is a bit too complicated to keep in your mind. It's much easier to remember the incorrect picture. Uh, atoms are composed of protons and neutrons in their center, that's called the nucleus, and uh, electrons are whizzing around the outside of the nucleus. The number of electrons, which are negatively charged, and protons are equal for atoms. Now the periodic chart shows the atoms we find in our environment, and actually some that we've made in the laboratory. Goes from the lightest to the heaviest. And in fact, we're going from left to right uh, over and over and over. Isotopes are atoms with different numbers of neutrons, but they have the same number of protons and electrons. This means that isotopes behave exactly the same chemically, but uh, from a nuclear point of view, they're quite different. I've highlighted hydrogen here because I'm going to talk about uh, fusing hydrogen to make helium and release energy. And I've also highlighted uranium, which is the basis for fission energy. So nuclear fusion basics number one. So how does the sun actually make fusion? It makes it by combining very high density and pretty high temperatures. At the center of the sun, the temperature is about 15 million degrees, and the density at the center of the sun is 150,000 kilograms per cubic meter. You can compare this with the density of water on Earth, it's about 1,000, or gold, which is one of our most dense elements on Earth, which is 20,000 kilograms per cubic meter. The sun holds all of this hot hydrogen and helium, which is the byproduct, <clears throat> together with gravitational forces due to its very large mass. The gases in the center are very hot and they exert a, a significant pressure that pushes outward. And these two forces are actually balanced on a global uh, scale across the sun. The sun is a very dynamic uh, beast, but in fact, overall, uh, the forces balance and this keeps the sun at uh, basically the same size, uh, lucky for us. Um, we cannot create the same situation on Earth, and so we end up using magnetic fields to confine this hot gas. The gas, turns out, is actually something called a plasma, which is a gas of electrons and ions. And ions are atoms where the electrons have been stripped off. 
The plasmas we make in the laboratory get up to higher temperatures, about 300 to 400 million degrees Kelvin. But our densities are much, much lower. In fact, our densities are much lower than the density of water, as you can see. We also know that protons and neutrons inside nuclei of atoms are actually bound together with different strength. And this is a graph that shows how tightly protons and neutrons are held together inside of the nucleus of uh, many of the elements on the periodic chart. They're not all listed here. And this is shown as a function of the number of protons and neutrons in the nucleus. So we're starting from hydrogen and going all the way to uranium at the other end of the curve. What this graph tells us is if, the, if we combine some of the low binding energy uh, nuclei together and produce something farther up the curve, we'll actually have a nucleus with a higher binding energy. If we can do that, we can actually release energy. The same is true at the other end, except in this case, you're taking a very heavy nucleus, and in order to raise its binding energy, you split it into smaller pieces. Iron is considered the most tightly bound uh, nucleus uh, of all the materials we have on our periodic chart. Okay, I think that's enough on this. So have we made fusion on Earth? Absolutely. Uh, the hydrogen bomb is actually a fusion explosion that is started by a fission bomb. You have to have a fission bomb to create the temperatures and densities necessary to make a fusion bomb actually go off. But I'll ask the question again, and have we made fusion on Earth before in a controlled way? And yes, we actually have. In 1994, uh, in TFTR, this is an experiment right here at Princeton Plasma Physics Lab, produced about 10 megawatts of fusion power. Uh, this is a picture of that device from the outside, and you can see there are a lot of auxiliary systems stuck on the machine, which makes it very hard to know what's inside. So we'll take a look what's inside the device. The plasma actually exists in this region. It wraps around this post and wraps around in the front. It makes the shape of a donut, and I'll explain why we like donut shapes uh, in a little bit. This is a curve of the fusion power as a function of time, and this green curve is actually the fusion power, a, a plot of the fusion power released in that experiment as a function of time. It lasted for about half a second. In 1997, JET at England, uh, also a very large tokamak, generated more power, 16 megawatts of fusion power, and uh, this red curve uh, shows their curve. And so theirs was uh, on for a little more than a second. Again, they also, from the outside, their device is similarly confusing, uh, but from the inside, you can see, again, the donut geometry that is characteristic of uh, confined magnetic fusion. All right, so nuclear reactions for fusion. Uh, from the binding energy curve, we can see that there's actually a lot of different ways to make uh, more strongly bound nuclei with light nuclei. But in fact, the easiest fusion reaction that you can do is the one that we're after. And easier means uh, that it'll occur at the lowest energy and with the highest reaction rate. And that turns out to be deuterium and tritium, or DT. You may have heard that phrase before. Right here, I'm showing what this reaction, how that reaction occurs. Uh, deuterium is that isotope of hydrogen. Regular hydrogen is nothing but a proton in its nucleus with a single electron on the outside. Uh, 
A deuteron has a proton also, but one uh, additional neutron in its nucleus. Tritium, the other fuel, has two additional neutrons. And when these collide with enough energy, they will produce a helium nucleus and a free neutron. Um, this shows the cross-section uh, for the reactions for a, a few different uh, types of fusion reactions where you're combining light nuclei to make something heavier and release energy. The DT curve is shown in red and it's clearly higher than the others. That means that it's easier to get a high reaction rate from this reaction than it is from the others. Also, its peak occurs at lower energies, and this energy can be interpreted the same as the temperature of the gas. And so, in fact, it has the highest reaction rate, and we can achieve that reaction rate at the lowest temperature, and this is why this is our target. We can actually produce plasmas with the right temperatures and densities to make a substantial fusion with this reaction, but we cannot with these reactions. We don't have sufficient plasma performance to generate these other reactions. Okay, let's come back to this equation again and look at our fuels. The first fuel, deuterium, this is found in seawater. About one out of every 6,500 atoms of hydrogen is a deuterium atom. And uh, tritium, on the other hand, uh, does not exist naturally. All right? the, most of the tritium on Earth is from weapons tests that were done in the 60s. And the amount that's produced by cosmic rays is very small. It also has a life of about, a mean life of about 17 years, so it doesn't last very long once it's made anyway. Well, so how are we going to get this material? Deuterium is very plentiful, but tritium is not. Well, it turns out that we can produce tritium by a fairly um, convenient reaction, which is having neutrons collide with lithium. And it just so happens we have a, a neutron with quite a bit of energy coming out of the reaction, so this is a very cozy arrangement. The lithium um, comes in two isotopes, naturally lithium-6 and lithium-7, and this is how those two reactions go if a neutron collides. It produces helium and tritium. One case we actually release energy, and another case we actually consume a bit of energy. Lithium is generally not considered a resource limitation. From the terrestrial re uh, reserves that we have right now, it's expected that fusion could, could go for about a thousand years. And that includes competing with uh, battery makers. It turns out there's about 10,000 times more lithium in the ocean than there is terrestrially. And we think that, in fact, this uh, largely makes us a non-issue. A non so how do we get fusion to happen? We have to get the deuter deuteron and the triton nuclei close enough to overcome their repulsive force. These nuclei have protons in them. They're both positively charged, and they do not want to get close to each other. Um, if they do get sufficiently close, the strong nuclear force will take over and pull them together. So we need a few, a few things in combination, something we call the triple product. N is density, T is temperature, and tau is the time that you hold these nuclei together and let them interact. <clears throat> so the nuclei need high enough energy so that they get close to each other when they do collide. This requires high temperatures, and ultimately these temperatures uh, will make a plasma. It won't be a gas anymore. It will turn into a plasma. We need the nuclei to get close to each other more often, so chances are uh, that fusion uh, will actually occur. 
So we need a lot of nuclei colliding. That means high density. We also need to hold them together long enough so that, you know, in spite of their constantly banging on each other, they actually have sufficient time to have significant fusion occur. And this means we need to confine hot plasma for a long time. Here's a couple combinations of those parameters. Magnetic fusion, this is what we work on at Princeton Plasma Physics Lab. A density of about 10 to the 20 particles in a cubic meter. You know, that's, uh, you know, about like this. Uh, the temperature is about 25 kV or 290 million degrees Kelvin and holding it together on the order of seconds. This is sufficient to produce a fair amount of fusion power. Uh, another approach called inertial fusion, uh, which uh, uses lasers to uh, crush material to very high densities. Uh, the density ends up much, much higher than we have in our plasmas. In fact, it's much, much higher than the densities of normal matter as well. Uh, the temperature is about 5 to 10 keV, but it's only held together for a nanosecond. But this is actually sufficient to uh, get a full and significant fusion burn. Okay, so I mentioned plasma, and this is uh, what we do a lot of at Princeton Plasma Physics Lab. This is often referred to as a fourth state of matter after a gas. Uh, if you continue to heat a gas, um, a plasma will form because as you heat a gas, the particles start to collide with each other more and more often. And when they do, they will start to knock the electrons off of the atoms. And uh, if it's sufficiently hot, um, these particles will collide so often that the electrons cannot reattach and you can produce a gas of separate electrons and separate nuclei. A regular gas like nitrogen or oxygen in our atmosphere is neutral. It's made up of atoms, the electrons are stuck to the nuclei, and it has no nuclear charge. But plasmas have charge because the two charged species are now separated. Uh, this is a graph showing as a function of density and temperature a few different uh, types of plasmas uh, in our universe. Most of them are not on the Earth, as you'll notice. Uh, plasmas and uh, biological systems are generally um, not compatible. Uh, you'll see the photosphere, chromosphere, and solar corona, all three outer zones on the surface of the sun. Ionosphere, you're probably familiar with, especially if you're a ham radio fan. Uh, but also inside the center of flames, you can often produce some plasmas. So how do we hold plasma together? Well, someone said this, but I don't actually know who said it. Uh, holding plasma in magnetic fields is like trying to hold jello with rubber bands. It's a, pretty, it's a pretty good description. So we found that ions and electrons that make up a plasma move along magnetic field lines very, very easily. In fact, they flow very quickly. But in fact, they don't flow across magnetic field lines very well. They want to orbit them. And uh, this means it's very hard for them to cross magnetic field lines. So shown here is a picture of a plasma. If we had no magnetic field and you could keep it hot, so they kept bouncing around, didn't hit the walls and cooled down, they would go in all directions and bounce all, all over the place. But once we put a magnetic field down this tube, we find the particles lock to the field lines and spin around them. They still flow very easily along field lines. So this geometry is great for trapping plasma, but it doesn't really work because it has an end. So the plasma will, in fact, shoot right out the end and hit a wall or something else. So how can we stop this? 
Well, if you bend the cylinder around into the shape of a donut, you can get these magnetic field lines to close back on themselves. So now the particles are locked to magnetic field lines, and the magnetic field lines go around in a circle. In fact, they actually go around in a helix um, when you uh, uh, combine the actual fields together. So we create a magnetic field that goes a long way and a magnetic field that goes a short way and we create a donut geometry. And this is the main confinement um, approach for all magnetic fusion. Uh, whether it's a stellarator or a spherical tokamak or a tokamak, they all have the fundamental toroidal geometry. So how do we make toroidal geometry? How do we make those fields? Well, we can do it by combining uh, magnets with different geometry. Here's the plasma again, making the donut shape, this yellow thing in the middle there. If we wrap coils the short way around and put a lot of them, basically forming something like a, a toroidal solenoid, and we also wrap coils the long way around, we can actually produce the fields that will make a toroidal plasma shape. We can even drive current in the plasma and have it make, uh, contribute to the fields also. Well, we need to make the plasma hot and we need to keep it hot. Otherwise, it won't remain a plasma very long. So how do we do this? Well, one common way is, in fact, to drive current in the plasma. The plasma is an excellent conductor. In fact, it's better than copper. And so if we actually induce currents in the plasma, we can drive current and that current will um, dissipate and uh, heat up the plasma. We can also use electromagnetic waves. Because the plasma is composed of charged particles, it can support a very large number of oscillatory modes. Um, in particular, uh, if you recall, the ions and the electrons spin around magnetic field lines we can use very specific frequencies that match the frequency with which they spin around a magnetic field line, and they will absorb the energy that we inject into the plasma with those waves. It's true of both electrons and ions, and so this is one technique for using electromagnetic waves for heating the plasma. There are actually several others. We can also just inject high-energy neutral hydrogen right into the plasma. We create basically a, an accelerator for hydrogen, we accelerate the hydrogen while it's charged. We pass it through a neutralizer. It becomes a neutral particle, and it goes into the plasma chamber and actually makes it well into the plasma before it becomes ionized and in the process heats the plasma. Ultimately, when we start making fusion reactions, the helium-4 that comes out of the fusion reaction comes out with a lot of energy, and it will, in fact, be the main way that we heat the plasma. Well, here's a picture of a plasma. Um, so, how do you actually hold it? Well, you have to hold it in a metal vacuum vessel. If you recall, we have very low densities of particles in magnetically confined fusion plasmas. And so, in fact, it's virtually a vacuum. So, there's actually a tank around this plasma. And uh, also inside there are coils. They happen to have coils in this particular machine inside the vacuum vessel and there's a port over here. You can just see a, a few things through the plasma. In order to make plasmas on Earth, we have to make what are called vacuum conditions. And the number of particles in this plasma is about 100,000 times less than the air around uh, that we're used to. The metal container, this, which we call a vacuum vessel, is built to resist the very strong forces between atmospheric pressure on the outside and having vacuum conditions on the inside. 
So this is one of these plasmas. It's actually the shape of a donut. It wraps behind the post and then comes actually in front of the post. The reason you can see the outline of the plasma is because as you go from the center to the edge, the temperature actually drops. And when you get to lower temperatures at the edge, some of the electrons recombine with the nuclei and they start popping up and down from energy levels and giving off visible light. And so that's why you can actually see these lines. It also happens when they collide with solid material surfaces and that's why you can see light all down here where there are uh, surfaces where the plasma is impinging. Okay, so in the United States we have uh, three uh, large tokamaks that we use to do experiments. The D3D tokamak at General Atomics in San Diego, uh, Alcator CMOD at MIT, and NSTX right here at Princeton Plasma Physics Lab. There are several devices also around the world that uh, uh, produce plasmas uh, in uh, England, Germany, France, Italy, Japan, Korea, and China. All right, now before I move on to uh, fusion reactors or what our vision of fusion reactors is, um, let me talk about our next big thing. Our next big experiment is called ITER, uh, International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. This is a picture of uh, what it looks like, probably with a lot of things left off so you can actually see it. This is a cutaway so you can actually look completely inside the machine. The plasma is actually going to exist in here, wrap around this post and come in front of us, the classic donut shape. You can see one, at least one of these large magnets that wraps around the plasma the short way around. There are a number of these other ones that wrap the long way around also in this picture. There are ports. This is where we inject radio frequency waves and can heat the plasma. This is a quite large machine. Uh, it's being built in southern France right now. Not bad, right? Southern France. Uh, by uh, EU, uh, Japan, US, China, uh, Korea, India, and Russia. The first plasma is expected in 2019 and the first DT plasma in 2028. This is a site that's being cleared. In fact, it's gotten quite a bit further than this picture now. They actually are digging the pit for the tokamak. This machine from the center of the hole in the donut out to the middle of the plasma is 6.2 meters. It's a very large machine. It's about the size that we think reactors are actually going to be, except this machine will not generate as much fusion power as a reactor, and I'll get to that in just a second. So this is a picture of that plasma that will be produced in ITER compared to that large device in, Jet, in England called JET, which produced some DT fusion before. I showed you the uh, picture of that experiment. TFTR uh, in the US is actually a circular plasma that fits right perfectly in the middle of JET. Uh, the D3D tokamak I talked about is almost the same as this Aztec's upgrade, this blue one. Unfortunately, uh, this picture was made by Europeans, so they left all the US devices off and just showed the European ones. Um, NSTX is uh, uh, close to the blue one, a little bit taller, and uh, Alcator CMOD at MIT is between this uh, turquoise and the dark blue, about that size. So ITER is going to make 500 megawatts of fusion power for about 500 seconds. It'll also make somewhat less fusion power, about 300 megawatts for 3,000 seconds, almost an hour. To make a comparison, however, a power plant needs to generate something like 2,000 to 3,000 megawatts of fusion power and for roughly one year. So this is a very large step for us from what we do now in experiments, um, but it's not quite the step 
all the way. The fusion power produced will be about 10 times the power injected into the plasma, but in a power plant we need something more like 20 to 40 times in order to be economical. ITER will use 80,000 kilometers of niobium-titanium superconductor. In fact, they will consume the world production of this material uh, for about five years. So if you need some, get it quick. Um, a power plant will actually be about the same because ITER is nearly the same size and the coils would be very similar. Each of those toroidal field coils, those are the ones that go the short way around, there are 18 of them that weighs 360 tons. It's the same as a 747 fully loaded aircraft. ITER is going to consume about 16 kilograms of tritium, all right, that's one of the fuels, over its 20-year um, deuterium-tritium burning campaign. This consumes just about all the available civilian supply in the world, which is produced by fission reactors, actually. A power plant would actually consume 110 to 170 kilograms of tritium per year, I mean every year, not over 20 years, but every single year. ITER will have about 420 blanket modules. Let me go back. Each one of these little squares is what we call a blanket shield module. These are actually to slow neutrons down and uh, take them out of the system and try to protect things that lie behind them. That's their function. There are 420 of them inside the vacuum vessel. Each weighs about four and a half tons, and each one has to be installed by a robot arm. No people allowed. And this shows a picture of one of these robot arms coming in through the port. It establishes a ring that goes all the way around in the plasma region, and it rides around on that ring. And this is actually one of those blanket modules uh, from a computer simulation of how it would be installed. A power plant, on the other hand, would actually need to maintain much larger pieces to be efficient. This is much too slow. It will take either probably one and a half to two years if they ever had to replace all the modules because this is not a very efficient way of remotely handling a machine. So a power plant, we would actually remove much larger sectors at a time. Okay, so now I'm going to start to talk about our vision of a fusion uh, power plant. And let me remind you, there are no fusion power plants generating electricity right now. Don't be confused. Um, uh, there are fission power plants, but there are no fusion power plants. Uh, this is a research area, and we're trying to resolve and establish the technical basis so that we can actually build one. So this is a picture, very similar to the Eater picture, but it's a picture of a power plant that has been designed. Uh, there's a series of basic pieces that I'll talk about. And let's start with the plasma. This is the region where the plasma would exist. It would, again, wrap around the post and make a donut shape. What we call first wall and the blanket, this is where we absorb neutrons that come out from the reaction. And, uh, and we gather that heat that they generate. And it's also where we make tritium. And that's highlighted in red. So it's a layer that's red there on the inboard side and on the outboard side. We have shields to stop neutrons from getting out too far and stop uh, neutron activation of things behind them. That's these blue-green blue layers in here. The vacuum vessel to make vacuum conditions is actually this beige item here. It wraps all the way around and it has large port doors. We actually take entire sectors out through the door. That is the planned maintenance scheme for a power plant. The magnets, uh, this dark blue is a magnet, and these brown objects are also magnets. 
And there are several of these, about say 16 of these, and probably 18 to 30 of the brown type magnets. And also the diverter. This is where we absorb power that comes out of the plasma, but doesn't really go into the blanket the way the neutrons do. And that ends up down in regions here, the yellow at the top and the bottom. And I'll cover that in just a little bit. All right, first let's start with the plasma. We can write a, a, a little formula for how much fusion power we'll get and what it depends on. How much, what's the density of deuterium and what's the density of tritium, that product. Um, and this density is the number in a cubic meter. Uh, this is the reaction rate. This depends on the temperature of the plasma. How much energy is released in the reaction and what's our volume of plasma. And if we uh, make some estimates for what these quantities are, we can calculate how much fusion we generate, and it's a little under 3,000 megawatts of fusion power. Now, we would try to convert this into electricity and, say, generate about 1,000 megawatts of electric power. Uh, here's the reaction again, the tritium-deuterium combined to give off a helium and a neutron. The helium and the neutron actually have the energy. Energy does not come out independently. It comes out as in the form of fast particles. This helium is trapped inside the plasma, and it heats the plasma. The neutron is not charged, so it is not trapped at all. It comes right out of the plasma and goes into all the structures that surround the plasma. Let me jump to magnets. Uh, in a power plant, we would use superconducting magnets because they consume very little power, and this helps our power balance in the fusion power plant so that we're not consuming as much electricity as we produce. Uh, and so superconductors are the magnet of choice for uh, power plants. This is a picture of the superconducting magnet, uh, uh, actually a winding of that magnet, that will be used in ITER. Uh, inside are zillions of filaments. Some are copper, and some are made of niobium tin or niobium titanium. These are, in fact, the superconductors. When they're cooled down to uh, 5 degrees Kelvin, they're superconducting, and that's the temperature that you operate the coil at. This is a picture, there's a man. This is a picture of what one of those coils will look like on ITER. This is the restraining steel structures, and the magnets actually are wound inside here. Oh, well, actually, most tokamak, or most experiments actually use copper coils right now. Uh, that's because they're cheap, and we know how to make them extremely well. We've been making them for probably 100 years. However, there are actually experimental devices uh, around the world, about five, that use superconducting uh, magnets already. So we have considerable experience, but we are always trying to push the envelope of these materials. The vacuum vessel, again, as I explained before, this is what keeps a vacuum on the inside and air pressure on the outside. This is a sector for ITER, another picture of ITER. It's just a cut, though. In fact, there's a whole bunch of these all lined up uh, to make a donut shape. You can see ports. This is where we inject power, or we make measurements, or we move something up close to the plasma. And this is just a picture of a stress calculation that's been done on this particular sector. They're looking for where the stresses are highest and uh, the red spots are, what that's telling you. This structure not only has to withstand vacuum, but also has to withstand electromagnetic forces that are generated by magnets changing their current or the plasma moving or decaying quickly. Let's get to the blanket and the shield. All right, let me go back just a second. We're going to be looking 
we're going to look at this cutaway straight on. All right, that's what this picture will be. Uh, here is the plasma. This is where the fusion is taking place. And uh, helium is generated. That's locked in the plasma. It does not come out. Uh, but the neutrons do come out, and they fly right into all of this material that surrounds, uh, that surrounds the plasma. These neutrons heat all of these structures in here and generate um, power, which is recovered uh, for generating electricity. In addition, we've put a lot of lithium in this region as well. It's a breeding region, and so the neutrons will also collide with the lithium nuclei and make tritium, and we will recover the tritium that's bred in these regions in here. There are also shields behind that to try to reduce the neutron number of neutrons and also their energy. By the time we get from the front to the back, we need to drop the number of neutrons by about 10 million times. In addition, we have to remove all the high energy neutrons and only have much lower energy. This is a cutaway of that blanket. I made a cut right there and then pulled that piece out so we could look what's inside. This is the first wall. This is what sees the plasma and the neutrons head on. We usually have a coolant flowing right near that first wall because it gets fairly hot. Right behind that, we have larger tubes. This is where we would flow lithium, or either lithium or lithium lead, or we might even have a solid lithium compound. Behind that are the shields that, whose sole purpose is to uh, absorb neutrons and reduce their energy. But here we're collecting almost 80 to 90% of the energy from the neutrons is deposited in this first region with the first wall and the breeding material. All right, the diverter. This is another uh, uh, complicated piece of the device. The diverter needs to absorb power from the plasma. The plasma is hot, but in fact, particles and energy constantly ooze out of the plasma. And that's why uh, we need more fusion energy to keep heating it, and we also continue to fuel it, and I'll talk about that in just a second. This energy and particles that sort of ooze out constantly will come into this layer between the wall and the plasma and flow very quickly down into something we call a diverter. This is where we try to collect this power and also the particles. What we find is that, in fact, the plasma comes in in a very, very thin layer. And in fact, uh, materials even as uh, uh, robust as tungsten can easily be melted. So what we found is that if we inject gas, or we also allow the particles to build up in this region, and I'm talking about atoms, not necessarily plasma particles, but atoms, we can actually cause that power to radiate before it ever hits the wall. So in fact, it radiates its power over a much larger area, and now we can handle it with conventional materials. So this is actually our plan for dealing with this diverter, and it's also how ITER will deal with that diverter. Here's some pictures of such a diverters. This is in the jet device in England. This is what the diverter looks like with armor tiles all over the place. Some of the power will flow right into that slot down in there, and some will flow underneath here. This is a picture of the same device. You can see uh, where you see the light means that, in fact, you're impinging on structures and making uh, atoms. 
and those atoms are giving off light, and that's why you can see the white light around there. This power also coming down the outside of this plasma and going into there, that's this outer region. And you can see that you, in fact, do light materials up quite nicely with hot plasmas. And every once in a while, we melt things. And uh, this is tungsten. Tungsten melts at 3,400 degrees centigrade. Something very, very uh, important in plasma physics is you, you might not notice by looking at the picture, but the alignment of these tiles is absolutely excellent. And there's a good reason. If the tiles are mismatched even slightly, the plasma particles and its energy come in and catch the edge and will deposit tremendous amounts of power. If you can keep the alignment very good, you can get that power to stay smoothly distributed around. What happened, we think, we don't quite know, is that this tile got out of alignment. Once it started to catch plasma and the heat flux that comes with it, it started to melt the first one, the second one. It's actually made up of a series of plates. And when we opened up the machine and found it, uh, why our we were wondering why our plasmas were not doing very well. Well, this was the reason we were actually uh, melting tungsten and having it come off into our plasma. We also have to fuel and we have to pump particles out of this chamber where fusion takes place. We basically fuel it with a gun. We make ice pellets of deuterium and tritium. We cut them off and make a little pellet. And then we have a very high pneumatic gun in the back and it blows it out uh, the barrel into the plasma. This has been demonstrated on many devices and in fact, this is basically the only way we can fuel a plasma at uh, fusion reacting temperatures and densities. But we also have to pump particles out. We have to pump out any fuel that was not burnt. We have to pump out the helium that's generated by the reactions. And we also have to pump out any other stuff that's generated by plasma wearing down any of our materials. You can think of it like a brake pad in your car. Several materials will see plasma and they can be worn down and this will generate impurity atoms and we need to pump those out. We pump from the diverter. And so this is a picture, this is where the plasma would be. Remember power and particles are coming down into this zone. And actually what we use is cryo surfaces, surfaces that are very, very cold. And we allow a lot of gas to build up in the diverter here. These are conditions that allow the net flow of particles from here into this region. We have baffles that are cooled to different temperatures to try and get different types of particles to stick in different regions. We also back this up with a turbo, turbo molecular pump or some other type of pump that can actually pump on extremely diffuse gases. Okay. In fusion, we have a lot of difficulties with materials. And the reason is the fusion environment is a very difficult one. The interaction of the plasma with our solid material walls is a tremendous challenge. What happens to materials when they're bombarded by plasma? Well, we have some answers, but in fact, it depends on the material, it depends on the type of plasma, it depends on the energy of the plasma. If atoms are actually knocked out of materials when plasma hits them, which they are, where do they go? Turns out in many cases, they simply go right back on to the surface again. In other cases, they're actually lofted and can distribute themselves somewhere else in your chamber. We also do not want tritium fuel to get trapped or embedded in certain places inside of our device. Um, 
because first of all, tritium is a radioactive material and we have to keep tremendously accurate check of, of where it is and how much we have. The second is it actually uh, presents an explosion concern, okay? We can't have hydrogen um, uh, in places where we cannot control the oxygen content. So in the event of an accident, if we had tritium locked or hidden in different places in the plasma vessel, it could be an explosion source. Okay, there are also many phenomena associated with neutron irradiation of materials. And in fusion, our neutrons are higher energy than the neutrons in fission. Um, this produces uh, a lot of additional types of reactions in solid materials than you might see in fission uh, neutron exposure. Neutrons actually change a material's properties over time. And in fact, those material properties eventually become degraded to a point that you can't use that component anymore. You need to take it out and put in a new one. How long and what, what, those property, what property degradation we can tolerate are things that we're studying now. Also, inside of solid materials, these neutrons will generate helium gas by interacting with the material, uh, the nuclei in the solid material. These helium gas bubbles actually move around and find other helium gas uh, molecules and they form cavities and bubbles. When they do this, actually they can distort the material a lot. This is called swelling. They have some very good pictures. I, I apologize for not having one. A piece of steel about this big, after it was exposed, it was this big, okay? Almost a 25% increase in volume. But in addition to that, it also degrades the properties. The material becomes uh, too brittle uh, or it can fail by several um, uh, brittle mechanisms. Uh, we also want to operate at high temperature for good thermal conversion efficiency. Um, mo most industrial applications in the world use water as a coolant, and water restricts the operating temperatures. Here, we're, we do not want to use water. We want to use gas, preferably helium. And we want to operate at high temperatures and get high thermal conversion efficiencies. A standard thermal conversion efficiency, that is, uh, how much fusion energy did I generate, how much electric power did I get out, is usually about 35 to 40 percent conversion. You only get 35 to 40 percent of that converted into electricity. We would like to push this up to 40, 50, and even as high as 60. And uh, so we do this with gas cycles, but if you operate at materials at very high temperatures for prolonged periods, their properties change. And we have to understand those mechanisms so we know how the material will operate in that environment. Okay, in a fusion reactor, all work will have to be done remotely, no humans allowed. I don't know who would want to go in there after it started anyway. But uh, um, we don't do a lot of this on tokamaks around the world, except one. Jet Tokamak in England has been using remote handling since they built the machine. It's really astounding. This is an arm that goes in their tokamak, all right? Now, they have to go in through a porthole. Remember, it's a donut shape. And so this arm has many elbows so that it can actually go in and wrap around halfway around the donut. It can come out and go back and go the other way around the donut. They recently just used this arm with a mechanism on the end that looks like this to install 5,000 beryllium tiles in the machine. 
and they did it all remotely. No humans went inside. Here's the guy. I was just at this lab uh, uh, maybe about six months ago, and I got to watch them uh, actually installing tiles. So this guy is looking at a computer-generated picture, and uh, with his hands right here on these mechanisms, he's actually installing the tile. Okay, so safety and environmental issues. Actually, safety and environmental issues on fusion have been a big topic from the beginning. Uh, probably as much because uh, we've been able to watch fission. And that helps us learn when they do things well and when they do things not well. And uh, so uh, there's actually high level fusion targets in terms of safety and environment. And these have been um, enforced or dictated by the Department of Energy, something called the Fusion Safety Standard. And these are actually the documents that describe them. There's three primary uh, goals. One is to minimize health and safety risks to public and workers. Clearly, that's, that's always the goal. But we also have a couple others that uh, go beyond fission's ability. And that is no need for an evacuation plan in the event of an accident. The radioactive, uh, radioactive dose to a person at the site boundary for fusion uh, power plants that we have designed conceptually so far and done the safety analysis on have 10 to 25 times less than for fission. Having this low a number means we do not need an evacuation plan. So during normal operation, we're about 10 times below uh, the spec for fission. And during the worst accident, we're about 25 times less than the, worst, uh, than the spec for fission. We also are being asked by DOE uh, to minimize or avoid high-level nuclear waste. And in fact, fusion produces radioactivity levels in materials that will qualify for low-level waste. This requires only shallow land burial. This is after waiting periods. Actually, I should have a zero because we have uh, several components that don't have to wait at all. Um, after waiting between one and 30 years, 30 years for the very worst actors, generally the first wall and some of the blanket materials, would have to wait 30 years but after 30 years, they are considered low-level waste and could be put in shallow land burial. Fission cannot do this with fission fuel. Okay, there are other uh, interesting aspects. Uh, ensure after heat or decay heat removal. Provide rapid shutdown of the plasma. Control coolant energies. Control chemical energy sources. Control magnetic energies. We have magnets with uh, a lot of stored energy in them and limit airborne and liquid releases to the environment. So this is a set of standards, and in fact it uh, goes on in more and more detail as you go through these documents, uh, that fusion uh, is being asked to meet. Well, in fusion we have the advantage that the materials we surround the plasma with don't really have much to do with the fusion reaction. And because of that, then we can optimize our materials. We can pick them to have low radioactivity. So assessing materials to minimize the radioactive impact. In fact, we've gone through the entire periodic chart and looked at every single element and what sort of waste uh, disposal rating it would incur if it was exposed in a fusion power plant. We've also looked at all the safety measures in terms of chemical reactivity and um, um, also radioactivity or dose and also ranked all of the materials. And this is the short list of materials which um, we can use. 
And in fact, we're taking this list uh, quite seriously. So we're looking for materials that have short-lived radioactive nuclei uh, so that we don't have prolonged radioactivity for uh, very, very many, many years. We're trying to find materials that have minimal chemical interactions with oxygen or other gases or liquids. We're trying to find materials that have low reactivity at elevated temperatures. We're trying to find materials that produce low decay heat and or rapidly dropping decay heat. And also, we're developing materials and processes to make impurity levels of, of bad actor materials very low. As it turns out, it's often not the base material that's your problem. It's impurities in the material. And up to now, no one really cared. If you're building a bridge with steel, you don't care about most of the impurities that are in that steel. But in a nuclear environment, you really do. Because the nuclear radioactivity is often dominated by impurities and not the base material. And so we're looking at ways to uh, remove these impurities that are bad actors and um, um, avoid the situation. Uh, this is a graph of decay heat. Let me explain this uh, quickly. Um, after you shut the power plant down, um, any material that's radioactive generates its own heat. And that heat can be substantial. If you don't continue to cool that material, remember the reactor's shut down, so it's not generating thousands of megawatts of power anymore. It's just radioactive material decaying, disintegrating in the material and generating heat. If you don't cool that, those materials can reach melting temperature. And that's a problem. And that was a big problem at Fukushima. Well, it's been a problem. It was a problem at Three Mile Island as well. And this is a plot of the decay heat using some of the materials for, that have been developed for fusion. This is a, a ferritic steel uh, that has been uh, special. The impurities have been removed. And what it shows is the decay heat starts uh, well, all right, so a megawatt per cubic meter. And over a time period of uh, less than a day, that uh, decay heat drops by a factor of 10. Once it drops by a factor of 10, it's not going to melt the material anymore. We also have another material, vanadium. We looked at the uh, decay heat from that. Over a little bit longer, maybe more than one day, but not quite a week, uh, this dropped by a factor of 10. And so we didn't have to worry about melting of this material either. And in fact, using ceramic materials, these actually drop uh, a factor of 100 in less than an hour. So this is very important to have low decay heat so that if you have accident situations, you can, in fact, survive and not create a worse situation. Okay, what are the pieces of the safety picture for fusion? Uh, we try to find out what are all of our radioactive materials, what are the activated materials from neutron exposure. Tritium fuel, this is radioactive, we have to keep track of this material. Dust and debris in the plasma chamber from plasma exposure. These are the three primary radioactive material sources in fusion. We're interested in sources of energy. How can, we, how can sources of energies be released and compromise our containment and release radioactivity? So we look at our decay heat, that's one possibility, pressure from coolants, chemical reactions by allowing temperature to get too high, they may have a very violent reaction with oxygen, and this just propagates, uh, makes an accident situation much worse. Also magnets are electromagnetic fields. We examine accidents, this is very similar to fission, they do the same thing, they do a lot of this tracking for, uh, for fission power plants as well. 
We look at loss of coolants, what happens when the coolant just disappears. Uh, is the decay heat low enough that the materials will maintain integrity and not lead to an actually worse situation than we started with? Loss of coolant, overpressurization, spilling our lithium. You know, we we uh, postulate a, a large list of uh, accidents. And we have a series of approaches, multiple confinement barriers. The vacuum vessel is our primary barrier for containing radioactive material. The cryostat, which lies just outside of that, is the second barrier and a bioshield is our third barrier. We use double wall piping where we have tritium. We use tritium permeation barriers. And so there's a long list of um, approaches and ways that you try to confine uh, radioactive material under, even under accident situations. We use low activation materials, which I mentioned before, low chemical reactivity materials. In fact, we avoid water because water and lithium can react violently. And we don't want to uh, have that source of energy uh, inside of our vessel. So we use lithium lead instead, and it turns out that this material has a very uh, kind of wimpy reaction uh, to water. We also use helium coolant, which is inert and doesn't interact uh, with many, uh, doesn't interact. Uh, passive decay heat removal, uh, we look at natural circulation loops. Uh, we uh, look for materials with rapid reduction of decay heat. Also, we're starting to look at recycling. Um, we're looking at materials from a fusion device that could actually be recycled into another fusion device. There's no point in burying materials if we can actually reuse them again. And so this is a new area that we're starting to look at, uh, and uh, we'll, see. we'll see how that pans out. Okay, before I wrap up, I'm going to give you a very quick um, overview on inertial fusion. I apologize if you're really waiting for this uh, discussion. Um, I have some backup slides if you're interested. Uh, inertial fusion is another way to make fusion. Uh, the National Ignition Facility is a new experiment at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. Okay, they use powerful lasers converged onto a small target and they just crush the daylights out of the target. Okay, they raise the density of the deuterium and tritium up to the level of density actually above the density level in the center of the sun. If they can do that um, efficiently, that is uh, very symmetrically and very quickly, they can actually get a good fusion detonation. It is a ba basically a bomb. This compress, oh, okay, I already went over that. Let me show you, this is a neat picture. So this is actually the target. Look how teeny tiny that is. That's actually put inside something called a whole ROM. This is a special material that reflects radiation very well. The lasers are steered onto the ends of the whole ROM, so they enter a hole at both ends. By the way, that whole ROM is sitting on the end of this. And usually when they do this, this guy is not there. Okay. <laughs> All right, so uh, the lasers point onto the ends and come in, and they reflect off the interior of this cylinder. And they bathe this target with ultraviolet light very uniformly. That's why they use the whole room. It helps them bathe it uniformly and get a very uniform compression. Okay, and um, uh, I do, I have seen a picture of what that thing looks like at the end, and yes, indeed, the end is all scraggly and uh, uh, blown up. Okay, so uh, why do we try to make fusion? This is my wrap-up. Uh, practically inexhaustible. I'm sure somebody can call me that maybe the lithium will eventually wear out. I don't know. Uh, but I'll say practically inexhaustible energy source, basically uh, uh, derived from the fuel. 
The worldwide availability of fusion materials may reduce international tensions caused by the imbalance of fuel supply that we presently have, the haves and have-nots. Uh, either that or we'll have uh, lithium PEC instead of OPEC, maybe. Uh, the amount of fuel in a fusion reactor at any time is actually extremely small, and you can see that the density of the material is extremely diffuse. So there is no chance that you will ever have a fusion explosion uh, at a fusion power plant. There's no release of greenhouse gases. The byproduct of the reaction is helium, so it's not radioactive. However, we do generate radioactive waste. The material that surrounds the plasma is radioactivated, but we can choose our materials to keep that waste at low-level waste. The materials in fusion actually can be tailored to minimize nuclear afterheat, reduce waste, and also avoid chemical reactions uh, like the explosions that happened at Fukushima. And that's a main advantage of fusion because our materials are not tied to the nuclear reaction. Okay, thank you. Okay, we have time for some questions. Yeah. Well, when a uh, fusion uh, power plant is ready to produce electricity at that time, and if radiation exposure is so much less uh, than fission plants, why is it necessary to work remotely? Well, it's a lot less than fission, but it's still enough to kill you, okay? Uh, it's... You know, in other words, I can measure the amount of radiation coming off a piece of material, and in fission, that radiation level is, is higher. And um, in fusion, it's lower, but it's still toxic. It still will kill you, okay? So maybe we're making a distinction that uh, doesn't need to be made in terms of uh, biological systems. But from waste disposal and things like that, th those differences actually matter. Yeah. Should be safe, no? Uh, safe in terms of... People. Oh, oh, yeah, people can work at the plant, but they have to be outside the bio shield. So we have, we have the inner core where all, most of the fusion is going on and the coils and things like that. But there's a bio shield, and people are on the other side of the bio shield. Yeah, I didn't mean that nobody is there. I just meant... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to... Say that so confusingly. There's people there, but you know, there's this place where they can't go, and that's inside the bio shield. I'm curious about the amount of helium that such a machine would require. Uh, I don't think of helium as an extremely abundant material. It's always, always, uh, I, I don't know how to put it even. Uh, huh? Yes, yeah. it's expensive, and, yeah. and, and, not a, and you must need tons and tons of it. Well, actually, we don't need uh, helium. We actually produce it. So helium comes out as, uh, from the fusion reaction. We actually produce helium. And in fact, we make a lot of helium in the lithium when we're making tritium. So we may be um, um, he, he, helium pack. We may be the helium pack of the future. But that's certainly true. Uh, helium-3, of course, is even more uh, difficult to come by. Um, but uh, we don't actually require helium, but we end up making all, all sorts of it all over the place. Yeah? Um, 
Will this work? Yeah. Um, I was an English major at Princeton, so I'm, I'm totally ignorant. But I did take a tour of, of the laboratory about four months ago. Okay. And we were talking about the budget of $100 million a year and the fact it might take 30 or 40 years to be successful with this process and, and the uncertainties surrounding that, that budget in, in the future. And I asked the question of what would happen if Bill Gates were to throw a, a, a half billion dollars at this? And <clears throat> the answer was it would make a huge difference and shorten the time frames enormously. And I said, what would happen if Warren Buffett were to throw another half million dollars <laughs> yeah, at this? Yeah, yeah. And the answer was, now we're talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, so what would a billion dollars from those two people do to your time frames, and what are those time frames? Okay, this is a very hard question. I'm probably not qualified to answer, but I'll try anyway. Um, yeah, right now the fusion budget hovers somewhere around $250 million a year. That's the total U.S. fusion budget. Uh, there's more spent outside the U.S., you know, in uh, Europe and Japan as well. Um, if, if you could uh, apply more money to the program, the program would accelerate. That's absolutely correct. Um, how much you could shorten that time, is a, that's a harder question. Um, clearly, it wouldn't take 40 years, but could I do it in 20 years? That, that might be hard, actually, to do in less than 20 years, or even maybe 20 years. So it's true that funding helps a lot, allows you to address a lot of issues at the same time, and come together in the end uh, much more quickly. For example, the US uh, program does not address nuclear science very well. In fact, we have uh, really a minimal program. The program is dominated by plasma science. Uh, but there's a whole other half that has to come together for you to build a power plant and figure out how to make the blankets. So extra money would help that, pro that part of the program start moving, and almost certainly you could accelerate the program. But it's hard to say precisely how short uh, you could do it. The um, problems or challenges that you've outlined are even more prodigious than I had realized. Uh, I uh, studied the, uh, some of the material science problems that you're talking about uh, to a tiny degree 45 years ago when I was an undergraduate in a then brand new field of material science. And I thought, well, these will be solved eventually. And <laughs> yeah. um, you're still talking about the same ones. I have two real concerns um, that make me wonder, you know, are we trying to do the impossible here? Uh, type of concern number one is that these kinds of materials problems are very hard to solve. You talked about the tiles being hit by the plasma. That makes me think of the space shuttle, where they spend an absolute fortune on replacing tiles every time the thing landed, or of these uh, super-secret stealth bomber things, where they spend an absolute fortune on recoating the surface every time it flies, and that's one of the reasons why they hardly use them. Um, so these kind of material problems uh, of damage in critical environments cost far more than is ever anticipated at the beginning. That's type number one. Ooh, Concern cool. number two is if you're using up all of this superconductor material in the entire oh, world just for five years. and so forth, uh, <laughs> and possibly tr tritium too, um, unless you make your own, I don't know, uh, the resources aren't available. So I have concerns about material replacement costs that are going to be much higher than I anticipated and material resource availability. Okay. All right. Um, 
Okay, let me address the first one. It's true, material science um, is probably expensive science. The payoffs, however, have been tremendous. In fact, the ability to tailor materials is um, it's, it's astounding. So actually, the ferritic steel that I talked about is a fusion tailored material. They've actually taken ferritic steels, which are very resistant to neutron damage, and they've actually improved them even more by removing impurities and getting those activation levels down. They've also figured out that they can introduce nanoparticles into the mixture of this material and trap the helium that's produced from irradiation and stop it from combining together and damaging the material. It's just amazing what they can do. And so it's true, we do have material issues, uh, both from neutron uh, exposure uh, and also plasma exposure. Well, for plasma exposure, we actually have several experiments that do nothing but that. We turn them on and they blast plasma down a cylindrical um, device and hit materials constantly for hours and hours and hours. And we use these devices to understand the, um, uh, the behavior of the surfaces of those materials when they're exposed to all sorts of uh, situations. And um, so it's true, I think material science uh, can be expensive, but I think the payoff is, is always tremendous. Um, in, I think the applications will be wider than our field in spite of the fact that we've developed these materials specifically for our field. Um, fission is in fact very interested in our nuclear resistant materials uh, because they're interested in pushing to longer uh, or more aggressive burn scenarios. Um, in terms of uh, the manufacturing potential, the problem we have is that ITER is one of a kind. It's the first of a kind. And so it's actually putting pressure on the manufacturing capacity of the world at the moment for a material that's used only for making superconducting magnets. Um, if there was ever an industry, uh, you know, or excuse me, if there was ever uh, a fusion power plant, you know, you would start to make them, the industries w would come in. They would be developed to make that material uh, you know, at much larger quantities in probably much more efficient ways. Uh, you know, so the industries would follow. Eater is a one-of-a-kind beast, and so, you know, it does exercise more pressure on these industries than we would normally see for power plants. Now, tritium, uh, that's why we have to breed it. We have to make it ourselves because uh, there's, we can make it more efficiently than anyone else can make it, okay? And so it's easier to make it in the fusion plant than it is to try to get it from fission plants, which make it much less efficiently. Um, in that particular case, we have a, a civilian tritium supply is what I was referring to. This is made from can-do fission reactors. Their particular approach to fission generates tritium and they collect it. It's a big pain in the neck for them, but they collect it. And if you would like some uh, and you can show you're not using it for weapons, uh, you can buy it. And um, so, in fact, the Canadians have uh, generated this tritium supply from their fission reactors, and uh, that's actually what I was referring to. It's about 30 kilograms at the moment, but they're about to start shutting their reactors down, so that, that tritium uh, uh, inventory is about to start dropping. You, we've, you've been talking about uh, uh, research costs and, and a little bit of development costs. Is there any estimate of the, of the cost per megawatt 
eventually if everything worked out well in some sense? Cost of electricity, like solar cells. Oh, the cost of electricity. Well, yes, we do, actually. When we do um, the power plant studies, which are conceptual, nobody goes out and builds one based on those designs. They're not sufficiently detailed. But when we do do them, we do uh, try to calculate a cost of electricity. We try to benchmark the cost to, say, the cost of eater and things like that, so we're not making crazy numbers. Um, we have estimates of something like... Um, anywhere between 50 and 80 mils per kilowatt hour, okay? And that, um, that should be compared with fission, which can do it at about 40. Coal is probably about 50. Natural gas is, uh, yikes, probably 30. It's quite low. Um, so we're trying to see how competitive we are with the other sources. Um, but we are sort of projecting into the future, and it, it's a little uncertain. But uh, yeah, so that's that's the range. No, <laughs> we will never say that. I, mean, uh, I think you partially answered my question because you are looking at the total power plant. But it seems to me you're going to need additional processes to separate out these wastes. You're generating helium, and that isn't just going to appear in that, cans for you to re-inject into the reactor. So you're going to need a whole bunch of other processes yes, to yes. deal with these wastes. Is anybody working on that yet, or is it, it seems to me it's too early. But. Well, actually for ITER, that device we're going to build, we will actually have DT fuel going in, and we are having to address those problems. On, on most present experiments, we just use deuterium, no tritium, because it doesn't make a lot of neutrons and doesn't have a lot of fusion, uh, and it allows us to do plasma physics research. But in ITER, it will be DT, and in fact, all of, uh, all of the fuel and the tritium and so forth has to be collected and accounted for and processed and turned into ice and shot back in the plasma. All of those things uh, actually have been addressed in, uh, over many years, but in ITER, it's really culminating, so you know, we really do have to look at all of them together. I had a question about a slide that you had up, uh, the DOE safety slide. Yeah. Um, and if I read that right, it looks like, it, is it done from 96 and 99? You know, the two digits yes, that are at the yes. very end? Mm -hmm. Is that, you know, what, um, are they re-looked at? I mean, that seems like a long time ago to look at safety issues. Oh, are they yeah. re-evaluated um, well, yes, every I, now and then? I'm, you know. Well, yeah, actually, uh, I mean, we actually use these standards. Well, the standards are pretty good. No evacuation plan. You can't get much better than that. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> no, actually, every time we do a power plant study, we actually um, address accident conditions and a dose at the site. So it's done every time. And we have at least um, 15 power plant designs uh, since 1990. So we've done it over and over and over and over again. And we do constantly look at those materials that we're using um, and the accidents that we're um, postulating and how we model those accidents um, to make these projections. So we actually do a better, better and better and better and better job. But the, the standards themselves, they, they do change over time if we find there's um, you know, something we can do better or uh, uh, you know, something uh, is inappropriate, I mean, we would feed back with Department of Energy and try, try to find a better set of standards. But, but for, for the most part, these are really good ones, so we've stuck with them for some time. Okay, I think we have time for just one more question. 
In your slides, you're saying that you're generating electricity. How are you generating electricity from the energy being yes. generated? Yeah, so the, the neutrons come through the material. When they pass through material, they heat it up. And we're passing coolants through the material, uh, helium, for example. Uh, and also the lithium uh, is often a liquid metal. Uh, we like the liquid metal approach for lithium. That actually has a lot of power deposited in it. They're both sent to heat exchangers where we, exchange, we pass the heat onto a secondary side that goes to turbines to generate electricity. So that's a very basic picture, but it's a little more complicated. The thermal cycles are... So we're boiling water. Yeah, essentially you're boiling water if you want water on that side. But in fact, we're looking at high efficiency cycles, the gas cycles, because we can actually run a fusion plant at a pretty high temperature, anywhere between 700 and 1,000 degrees centigrade. This lends itself to gas cycles, which can be much more efficient. So we're looking at the possibility of not using water, but actually using a gas and uh, getting much higher efficiency. So that's, that's where we want to move, and uh, uh, we'd like to do that. Now, the one issue is we may very well have tritium in these fluids. Okay, So we always want to go through a heat exchanger where we can stop the tritium uh, and have a secondary coolant on the other side, as opposed to passing the gas, say, directly to a turbine. Then the turbine would be um, radioactive. We'd have to have containment around the turbine building. and So it's a trade-off, but usually we opt for a secondary loop. And please join me in thanking Dr. Kessel for his talk today. Thank you very, very much. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening.